0: all right guys well i'm really excited today we've uh managed to book uh george on here to speak with us on the podcast again uh we did a, a voice event with george ages ago uh, i can't ex- i can't exactly remember how long ago it was but it was like one of the most popular voice chats we've ever done in here um loads of people mm. have said since that they really want to you know do one of those sorts of chats again and they want to ask george a bunch of questions so um unfortunately mm. we didn't uh, I didn't send a message uh, in here that this event would be happening, so it is kind of a little bit last minute, and there is some uh, there's a little bit of confusion with the um, with the time zones and everything. But it's happening now, and if you're if you're here in the voice chat right now listening, there will be some time at the end. If you've got questions, um, you'll be able to raise your hand and like uh, ask them to George or just put them put questions mm. out for general discussion. Um, mm. Just In case uh, you guys don't know who George is, um, he's basically a very long-term SuperMemo user. Uh, I think, George, you started using SuperMemo back in like high school, right?
1: Right, yeah, just after I finished high school, about 2006.
0: Right, and there's a little bit of a mention in um, the SuperMemo wiki, uh, like some of the SuperMemo.wiki, no,
1: not SuperMemo.wiki,
0: SuperMemo guru articles. Uh, that you sort of co-invented incremental writing.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I just use, I, I just use, like, I do a lot of writing in my incremental reading, so I guess that's where it sort of started.
0: Right. Right. Mm. And right now you're also working on kind of a new incremental reading system called Dendro. Right. Yeah, that's right. That's awesome. So, and
2: actually, I don't know if this is too like inside baseball, but that voice chat you mentioned. In a lot of ways, I think I think that voice chat permanently changed my life, like permanently altered the trajectory of my life because if I hadn't shown up for that or if that didn't occur, I wouldn't have met George or at least not met him at that time and we wouldn't have linked up. And, and now I'm actually a co-founder of Vendro as well and we work together every single day on that. So that voice chat, I don't know exactly who I have to thank for that. I think Raj was the <laughs> one that set that up or what. But that that literally permanently altered my life. I I cannot believe it. I've thought of it sometimes, and it's it was literally the distinction between clicking one button to join and not. That's <laughs> what it all came down to. I mean, obviously you could break it down at at any other point, but just thinking of it that way is kind of surreal to me. So anyway, yeah, that that voice chat was hugely important in my life. Beautiful. All right. Well, yeah, I... it was a,
1: it was a great experience for me too, and um, I did. I I sort of uh forgot, but yeah, that's that's where Xander and I <laughs> met for the first time. And, and now yeah. yeah, we do work together um all the time. So yeah.
3: um
1: and it was also great to just like actually speak to other Supermemo users around the world because mm. this sort of community, you know, didn't exist at the time I right. started using Supermemo.
0: Yeah.
2: Right. Oh, See, yeah. that's a great point because back in those days, could you find anybody else that was using it? <laughs> um <laughs>
1: No, really. I mean, I I um I found a Facebook group, but it was pretty dead. Um mm. I think it was only when I started writing my procedural learning blog that I got some people reaching out um mm. over email, so that was that was good too. That was about mm. 2010, I think.
2: Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, that blog, that's still in my view one of the best resources for that kind of thing and just more general ideas. Like you gave some analogies of fluency about like a deck of cards and how not all the cards can be at the top of the deck at once. You know what I mean? And right, I, right. a lot of those analogies within there and, and the ideas you you put forth in there, to me, those are still hugely valuable. And I don't know, it was such a long time ago that, that I would have thought there would have been more pop up. And I guess there've been a couple, but anyway, I, I still think that's hugely valuable resource. Yeah, it
1: was a, um, it was a, a great way to start sort of developing my own ideas around the incremental learning process and mm. um, it actually started when i a message was and i said like how do i use SuperMemo memo for learning skills and he said just experiment <laughs> that was uh, like he didn't give me any advice he said you know just try it for yourself um and i think you know that's that's part of the whole um philosophy now that's on super memo guru is like Basically, learn for yourself, self-directed learning. Mm-hmm. um Other people might give you advice or ideas, but at the end of the day, each person's got to build their own mental models. So that mm-hmm. was helpful in my path too.
2: Mm-hmm. Actually, speaking of that, do you still maintain those uh, procedural learning items?
1: Um, the yeah, so that's a good question. So at some point, I imported them to my general collection because I. Um, I used to keep them in a separate uh, a separate collection. And mm. in general, over the years, I've found that if I have more than one collection, I will just start neglecting all the others. Like, mm. I just, oh, yeah. I like the log into Super and, as well. Right. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, it's so much easier to just have a routine where you just go on and do one thing, whereas yeah. if I have, like, a procedural collection or, like, a music collection and another one, then I have to set up like two or three or four routines.
4: Mm. So,
1: um, but one of the problems that I came across was the the prop problem, which is like, I don't want to be like getting up from my chair and getting a basketball to do some basketball items and getting my violin to do some <laughs> violin items or whatever. So um there was that problem, which eventually meant that um uh, there was some that I maintained and some that I didn't. So like, i had some stuff on rubik's cubes which in the long term i didn't care about so much um (laughs) i had other ones on on maths which the maths ones now on my surface pro where i do super memo i um i use just pen to do those Um, using silas so those are in Mm. my general collection now Um, the violin ones um, i and those are the only ones I kept separate because that could be integrated with the violin practice routine. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it didn't need its own routine. And guitar was another one I had, which, um, yeah, I don't even know where my guitar is right now. So I'll let that one go, but I think yeah. that's the nature yeah. of incremental learning in general. Like even with my declarative stuff, I, there's plenty of stuff I've dismissed or deprioritized over time. Right. Right.
0: What do you think were the most um sort of successful experimentations with this procedural learning uh sort of system?
1: Um yeah, it's interesting that like um well, I guess in the in the long term, because now it's been like ten years or so, um and my life is totally different to to back then uh, I do other things outside of super memo. Mm. So um like, again, like the clarity of learning, there's just things that have, that have, um, that are still part of my life. And there's things that aren't anymore. So, um, right now I still teach and I still, um, uh, maths is still one of the subjects I teach. And so, and so it's physics. And so the, uh, engineering, the procedural engineering items that I have in SuperMemo, um, have kept my math skills up and that's been useful. Outside of SuperMemo, mm. um, and it's been great to be able to look, like, um, have a look at some complex maths problem and be able to work on it without, like, having to go away for a day to remind myself what all this stuff is. Mm. Um, and then with violin, I found it interesting to see that the items have actually worked really well over the long term for, for the ones that I did um, or I have built strong memory stability for, mm. and that I can. Um, Pick up certain pieces and play certain passages, which uh, in the start were quite challenging. Wow. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, that's really interesting. I'm very interested in the um the violin items, like uh like in terms of w- what are they? Are they like scales, or I always thought that like more of an incremental, an incremental reading style of um, scheduling for music would be really interesting. For example, like doing like incremental composition, like you record. Thirty seconds, for example, on the guitar of a riff you thought was really cool, and then you just slowly develop it over time. So more like incremental reading or incremental writing. But what were the items that you were making for violin? Were they like scales, like I said, or something else?
1: Yeah, um, there was a combination, and there were there were definitely scales there. Um, I also did use that sort of incremental learning approach where I started off with a new piece that I'd want to learn, mm. and um, and then I'd basically start playing through it and see where I get stuck. And then that bit where I got stuck, I would um, extract that by um, taking a screenshot of the sheet music. And then mm-hmm. that's like, that, that would be a way for me to say to myself, here's a little passage I want to practice all on its own and come back to that later and just, just focus on that passage. Mm-hmm. So that gave me a way to go, okay, out of this, out of this like, I don't know, two or three page um, piece, there's these short sections, they're almost like paragraphs. There's these short sections that I just want to practice in isolation. Mm. And because there's some technically challenging aspect to them. Um, and then when I came back to those, those, um, those sections, then I applied some of the approaches that I mentioned in my blog, like I'd create my own variations. I'd cut out even smaller sections from those paragraphs, like recursive extracting, Mm. um, and then, so that I'm not even talking about items there. I'm just talking about like topics basically. Um, but instead of reading through the topics, I'd try playing through them on my violin.
2: Very cool.
0: Do you think there's some way so you could, the... oh, sorry, go ahead. Sander. Go
2: ahead. I just, I just want to ask real quick, what is the maintenance cost of that? Like, is it, does it take a huge amount of time to review it? Do you do it every day? Do you do it a couple of times a week? Like what, what does it actually look like? Yeah, um,
1: yeah. It was always it's always just like being a bit clunky. Um, basically, just using image image tools in SuperMemo. Um, taking even just taking photos and uploading them is not the um, smoothest. Like, there's no simple way to do it. You just take a photo, maybe email it or save it on Dropbox or something, and then copy and paste it in. Um, so I I generally try and go for the for the whole page, and then that would give me the raw data, and then I could use the image um, extracting tools. Um, where you alt click and then extract a part of the image. Um, so and then I wouldn't want to do that in the middle of playing, so I'd have to um, just make a note of stuff to do later, and and so I guess. Um, mostly, there was this upfront capital cost of of take a piece, um, scan or take a photo of the whole thing and upload it, um, and then the rest of it's a little bit easier to do, but not um, not that fun still. And so, it, you know, I found it most useful for the um, the most challenging bits essentially. And one thing that I um, often recommend to people using memo um, just normally is don't extract everything Not everything's important you know, extracting less is also a way of prioritizing and in this mm. case um, I had a really good incentive to extract less because mm. it's a bit fiddly to do so right you know from a whole piece I wouldn't be trying to take out every single passage um, I'd choose the ones that I really want to
2: yeah, I think that's I, I think that's really good advice, actually, because a lot of people think and in some way, I think was. Propagates this or, or promotes this way of thinking. It's like, oh, incremental reading is the ultimate tool set. So if you prioritize properly, just extract however much you want. It literally doesn't matter. You can extract everything. And as long as you prioritize properly, you're going to end up in a good place. And I sort of don't think that's right. Like. It's possible to extract way too much stuff, and not everything is worth reading multiple times and processing into items and all of this. And you might be better off just longer term psychologically in terms of managing it if you extracted fewer things. But it's kind of a hard thing to to convey.
4: Yeah. Sounds- yeah.
2: was
0: always says like you can't overwhelm an incremental reader or something like that yeah
2: yeah he (laughs) told me that when i when i first started emailing with him you know he would email me a lot i would email him a lot and at one point i said you know i'm sorry for all the emails (laughs) and he says you can't overwhelm an incremental reader and it's like dude i don't believe that's true i i just don't believe like it's possible to do it it must be yeah
0: even now i find yeah i Uh, sorry even now I find that uh there's like a psychological impact of having too much stuff in the queue even now after all this Mm. time after even writing about that (laughs) that is like uh (laughs) kind of like a like uh you shouldn't worry about that you should sort of embrace the overload I I still fall prey to that as well I still have to hide the um the status bar because looking at it sometimes makes me uneasy uh but Mm. um yeah I don't know
1: yeah well I mean that's that's interesting that's an interesting sort of um, I guess maybe a segue at least for later into dendro because that was one of the initial key design decisions was not to put an outstanding bar. Mm, mm. I think it's I, I think in earlier SuperMemo it made sense because there was this idea that you have to finish all your repetitions, mm. um, but and that was to do with just items. But with um, modern SuperMemo, at least the algo the algorithm is such that um, it's much more flexible and it'll adapt if you don't do your repetitions on time. Mm
4: -hmm. And
1: so rather than you sort of following the uh, machine decisions and and listening to Superman tell you when to do everything, it's more that you say, I wanna spend some time learning and it'll help you spend that time efficiently. And so we wanna basically encourage that perspective in Dendro where it doesn't feel like this anxiety, it feels like, oh, I wanna go do some learning. Mm. just like if you pick up a book it doesn't tell you you know you need to read 40 pages today
0: oh yeah I always used to hate Mm. it in school like if I was sat in a chair that was facing a wall with a clock on it because it's like you see the time ticking down somehow it just stops you from getting into any sort of flow and it's the same Mm. with reading a book like I I would always try and like read a book in such a way that my thumbs would cover the numbers because when you're just seeing sort of uh it's almost like you see the time ticking away in that sort of (laughs) i don't know there's some sort of psychological effect that i really don't like from seeing the numbers tick down and yeah i i I don't know but uh, i definitely support that decision to like leave the status bar out of it are there any other sort of metrics like that um that you don't like in superman mode that you just don't you want to keep out of dendro
1: yeah that's a good question i mean that's a really big um Uh, sort of a big area that we, Xander and I and and Ollie, who also works on Dendro often discuss. Mm. And that is the misleading metrics in, in in SuperMemo and in other apps. When I say misleading, I don't mean they necessarily have zero value, Mm. but the way that they're often used and interpreted um, can lead to like essentially suboptimal learning. Mm. Um, So, the the one that we're talking about now, the outstanding queue. Um, if we're talking about it in in Anki as well, it's it's a, simple, a similar problem where um, you're just aiming to get the repetitions done and um, trying to get that stuff done. It just um, it's like quantity over quality. It means you're um, you're just trying to get to the end of the queue. You're you're happy to spend less time. Um, thinking about things. And I don't think any of those decisions are good. And so another metric that um, sort of adds to this problem is counting the number of items Mm. that you create. Um, So aiming just for having lots of items and equating that to lots of knowledge, I think is another really misleading metric. And that goes hand in
2: hand with that outstanding cue. Mm. Dude, I think that's such an important point because the number of items thing... That's a really easy one to latch onto. even if you're like really into this non-coerciveness, free learning kind of thing. It's easy to say, oh, well, the more items I have, the better that is. But I remember reading in the incremental reading documentation was says something like, you know, just three well-selected items per day can can do wonders or something like that. You know, and I always thought that's kind of nonsense. Like, how can that be true? Like three items per day, you're really under under-utilizing this amazing tool and the efficiency and all this. But after using it for so many years now, I really, really understand what he means by that, and it is really true. I'd rather have 1,000 great items than 50,000 sort of bad to mediocre items, which is what yeah. I think most of the items that, that people try to make in pursuit of hitting some number, like, oh, I want to make X number of items per day or whatever, I think those are... I don't know, I just just don't think that's good. And over time, I've I've really internalized, and now that resonates really deeply with me. Like, it's way more about the quality and the importance and the applicability of each item than it is about maximizing your number of items.
1: Right. Yeah, and I think that's maybe why you and I both have our initial intervals around, like, 30 days, is because um, (laughs) we're possibly a lot more selective than... Than mm-hmm. um, a lot of users are about what we actually add, and right. also I think um, you know there's there's also like was put out maybe six months ago um, an article about the maximum number of items that you can store in human memory, and mm-hmm. a really interesting conclusion from that article was that if you're using SuperMemo, you're not necessarily, um, and this is like this goes counter to pretty much everything people think about SuperMemo, you're not necessarily going to learn more than anyone else. Um, And that conclusion came from the fact that um, over Waza's entire, like, 30-something years of using SuperMemo, his rate of knowledge acquisition has been pretty much entirely linear. Um, Mm. And when you're measuring knowledge acquisition as number of items, that's not what he means. He's talking about number of items times the retrievability of each item. So right, right. If, if you have like, um, I don't know, 10 items of which you remember like 10% of, of each of them, or you have one item that you remember 100% of, you know, the sort of equivalent in that sense.
2: Right, right, right. Um, and
1: so you can just be basically adding a whole bunch of stuff and, um, and forgetting most of it, even in Sook Memo. Well, when I say forgetting, I mean like the retrievability is low. Right. So at the end of the day, SuperMemo really has its value in helping you choose what you're learning. That's really the core value. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 part of this like item count um, problem is actually discounting all the stuff that happens before you start practicing those items. So all the reading, all the thinking, all the note taking. That stuff is actually really, really important. And that's what yeah. we focus more on in Dendro. In fact, um, in some ways, we want to de-emphasize the, the items, not because they don't work. Of course, they work. Um, but because the stages preceding the items are what give value to the items that you create. Mm. Mm. That's
2: really I agree with that completely. And I, I think maybe someone else remembers this better. But was I think, as mentioned before that incremental writing may be even more valuable to him on the whole than incremental reading and he he phrased it something like it can help you shape raw knowledge into coherent models or something something akin to that concept and I I think all these other things like you say the thinking of it the the writing the note-taking all that is so much more valuable than just like oh I'm just trying to convert everything into items to me that's such a a lower level goal and this other stuff that it facilitates and really the core of it is that it it's one place theoretically where you can import all kinds of learning and it's prioritized and you can break it into pieces and deal with those pieces independently over time. I think that's the core of it. It's not like you're trying to get everything into items or you're trying to get everything into this state or that state. You're trying to learn things over time, prioritize manner in one place, like roughly that's the value add.
0: Mm. All right.
1: Exactly.
0: Yep. So it seems like so, number of items and like the status bar, those are examples of poor sort of metrics uh, for learning in like an incremental reading system. Do you think it's possible to design like a good metric? Cause it seems to me like a, a metric would be a really good metric of learning has to be sort of holistic and it has to involve things that take place like outside of the system. Just to give a, an example, like I guess for language learning, Obviously, you can count the number of items you have, and that might correspond to you know your knowledge of the vocabulary and uh, how close you are to a native speaker's vocabulary, and so on. But ultimately, mm. the uh, like a reasonable measure of success has to be has to take into account things that can't really be measured inside the system. So, for example, being able to read a book, I suppose, or converse with a native speaker. It seems like those things that are really those are the those are what you really want. Those are the progress. Uh, metrics that you really want to achieve so given that they sort of take place outside of the system is it possible to create a good metric or are we just
1: doomed <laughs> yeah well it's challenging to create a good metric um there's one more there's one more um sort of misleading metric that comes to mind and that's um that's in some some new um incremental reading systems um, they report what percentage of articles you've read like you've read 30% of this article or mm. you've read 70% of that one um and the whole point of incremental reading is really to forget about whether or not you're finishing things yeah and focus instead of focusing on the inputs and how much you've read focus on the outputs and how much you're learning so that's another misleading one that comes to mind mm. in right. terms
2: of especially because it's possible to have gotten 95% of the value while only reading 3% of an article. That, that's why that's a bad metric.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So um, in terms of a, a good metric, I think um, you know the more I've, the more I think about incremental learning and the value of it, I think um, it comes down to the self-directed aspect. And that means that really what we wanna do is put some tools in the hands of users to decide for themselves, Mm. Um, if they're getting value out of it. So for myself using SuperMemo, I think reflection plays a core part in how I judge if it's being valuable. Um, And if I look at the item count, I don't know, it sort of reminds me that I did some work Mm. um, and that's useful. I like to sometimes look at the the, the usage time and and make sure that I'm actually putting enough effort in um, to you know, because if if you don't put any time in, you're not going to get anything out. But at the same time, that's not telling you how much you're getting out of it. So for for me using SuperMemo, my main progress metric is just my own reflection. Um, At the same time, I think there's also an aspect when we're talking about progress here, there's an aspect where you want to focus on the journey and just the destination. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's also about enjoying the time that you are spending learning and not just sort of, slugging through it and and feeling like it's this chore and that you're gonna be a genius, you know, ten years down the track. Hmm. Um, I don't think that's anybody to do that I've been misled.
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. I um I have one more point. It's sort of a I guess a devil's like advocate point. There's this um quite famous paper in machine learning. I think it's called the Bitter Lesson or something. I I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um I but haven't it, heard that. No. Okay. It's basically talking about, um, uh, the state of machine learning and what's brought the most progress in the field so far. And essentially what it comes down to is, um, what, what machine learning engineers have found over the past, I don't know how many years of, uh, machine learning research, but what they found to be most effective was simply providing models with more data rather than working on a more sophisticated algorithm, um, So I'm wondering if there's like an analogy to be made here that sort of refutes your point about, um, you know, item selection being more important than uh, just item quantity, you know, perhaps, uh, I don't know, maybe there's some intrinsic, really fundamental difference between the way we learn and like a neural network learns that uh, the the analogy doesn't hold, but I I don't know, do you get what I'm sort of, where I'm sort of coming from there? Do you think that... uh, perhaps if, if you do learn enough items that that would result in like more intelligence over the long term or something than just item selection?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's an that's a interesting question, but I actually see no prediction there because in a machine learning system, you, you pass out a whole bunch of data
4: mm-hmm.
1: and then the neural networks um, generalize from that data. Mm. They basically prioritize and deprioritize what's coming in. Mm. without doing that, they're just going to remember everything and not actually end up with a model.
4: Mm.
1: in what's actually happening in the neural network is this data comes in and it starts working out which parts are more important, which parts are less important, which parts are the key features, and which parts are details. right Um and so the the irony for me often is is looking at machine learning and going that's that that was inspired by how the brain works that was inspired by human learning and humans aren't doing this um anymore at least they're not trying to Mm. and so um actually i think it's the exact same process and that neural network um approach is what we should be doing in incremental reading right and making those decisions that the machines are making too
0: so Mm. it seems that in neural networks as well as in the human brain like forgetting is the most important thing You're trying to forget the details that don't don't matter i guess
1: right yeah i mean you're trying to forget i think forgetting is really valuable for that reason um but you know the forgetting doesn't just happen um totally randomly like Mm. you're going to forget things that that are not meaningful and they're not meaningful because they don't link and integrate well with the Mm. other things the other data that you've come across right so in terms of the in terms of the bitter lesson i actually agree with it like 100% because, um, you know, the increment, and, and that's what we were talking about before, the selection is the fact that you have all this um, data coming in through incremental reading, and you have to make a selection about what stays in in the um, the items.
4: Mm.
1: Now, so I think it's actually the exact same thing happening. You want lots of data in the incremental reading process. Mm. And in terms of the the algorithm, I think that's where the, the like the super memo algorithm is less important than that learning process mm. uh, and i think so huge leaps have been made from like sm2 algorithm all the way up to sm18 um, and it works in a totally different way and, and much much better with sm18 at the same time i would rather a uh, capable and competent learner with sm2 rather than someone who's just trying to cram 10,000 flashcards with SM18. Mm. <laughs>
0: Very interesting.
2: Yeah, I completely agree but... with that. But I do want to note, I've seen Waz make a similar point, essentially saying, because of generalization, mm. this property of neural networks, it is possible to consume a bunch of low-quality information and then convert it eventually into something quite valuable. I mean, obviously, it's better. The whole point of trying to minimize the low-quality information you consume is to make room for the higher-quality information. And so if you're not increasing your, high, your, your consumption of high-quality information after reducing your consumption of low-quality information, mm-hmm. then, of course, it's not going to work right. You know what I mean? Like, you're trying to offset it that way. But also, I do think there is something to be said for just, just try to learn a lot. And if your options are a bunch of low quality information or none, I would say read a bunch of low quality information. (laughs) Like, of course, if you're reading a bunch of books, you would want to have a mix of fiction and nonfiction, unless you're me, in which case I don't read any fiction at all. But let's just say, right, you were reading only fiction. I think everybody would agree there's a lot of value to be had or to be gained from reading nonfiction books, right? But if the option is between reading only fiction or nothing at all, then, of course, reading fiction is going to improve your life more than doing nothing. Mm. So I, I think there's something to be said about that. But of course, if we're looking, if we're speaking in terms of optimization or getting closer to the optimum, then being selective while still trying to give yourself enough input to figure out what is truly important so that you can improve your selection mechanism, I think that's a better approach and closer to optimum.
1: Yeah, I think um, the challenge for a lot of people that I see is um, not so much that they're lacking high-quality information, but they lack the ability to um, discern what's high-quality. Mm, because right. often this is, a, um, you know, like as was says, some bad habits from school, where um, people often perceive as high-quality the information that is um, least um, least meaningful. <laughs> And that's because it's like here's a here's here's some fancy words here's some fancy words that you haven't heard before so by mm. knowing these words you're going to feel like you know more but <laughs> really what matters is the the ideas underlying those words um, and so yeah i think the challenge is not um lacking access to high quality information you know with the internet we all have access to high quality information i think the challenge is um, being able to tell what's high quality and what's not.
4: Mm. Mm.
0: i really like that point it it links to something that i watched really recently it was like um technology select committee <laughs> um it was uh dominic cummings who used to be the uh the prime min- like uh, an advisor to the prime minister here in the uk and uh mm. he was t- he's looking to set up an organization called aria which is like uh the uk's version of the us's uh, darpa which created the internet and right right he was talking about uh people who fund like fundamental research and like the kinds of research that led to um the internet like darpa and who's talking about how those sorts of funders who are able to select those risky projects that are going to pay off like in a huge way and like hundreds of trillions of value in the future kind of way like the internet those people are much more rare than the actual people who like the people who are being invested in, who are actually going to create the technology, and so it's it's almost as if these these funders they have to have like a level of taste, and who's talking about how taste was really what it was in these funders because they couldn't right. like pin it down to something um, like that could be measured externally, <laughs> like all that they could come up with uh for the reason why these funders had picked these projects and why they had continued to do so over like a long stretch of time was just taste and so do you think it's the same way with uh with learning material do you have to have sort of uh an innate refined taste to select the finest learning quality uh learning material or do you think this is something that can be uh i don't know developed or acquired over
1: time Mm. oh i mean absolutely it can be developed like i think um It's different if you're if you're choosing people for a job, you want to choose people who already have reached a certain level of competence. Um, But if you're talking about, um, you know, any skill, you're going to reach that competence over time. So if you're employing a doctor, you want someone who has medical skill, but no one's born with medical skill. So if you're employing someone who's making these funding decisions, um, then you want to you want someone who's already reached that level of skill. But I definitely think it's something that can be developed. Mm. Um, And that's what I think the essence of the self-directed learning process is not that we all start um, with, you know, knowing everything, but um, it goes back to that um, bit of lesson that you mentioned. It's like, as we get data and we make our initial decisions um, about what's important and what's not, that helps us build initial models and filters. Mm. And then as we use those models and filters, we pick out other information, link it in. And so we have this cycle that goes with um, collecting information, making sense of it, and then using that to make our next round of decisions. Mm. And this iterative process, I think, is really what learning is all about. Mm. So you know, I can't, the, I can't even consider the idea
2: that it's not possible to learn that mm. because that's what my conception of learning is. Hundred mm. percent agree. Agree with that. And I want to note unschooling, as it's called now, is not a perfect solution to it. It's not like I came out of the womb knowing exactly what's important and what's not. So even though I never went to school, I I didn't perfe- I still don't perfectly select knowledge, I'm sure. I I, I kind of view it like uh, I don't know, it's kind of like self-knowledge. For example, as you age, you recognize certain patterns in your behavior. Like, I tend to to do these kinds of things. If I leave a box of Oreos on my desk, I tend to eat all of them. Right. And so now I know about myself. I, I don't leave boxes of Oreos on the desk, so I don't eat them. All right. And as you learn over years, you come across information, especially with incremental reading, you see, see things over and over again and you go, Oh wow. It's been a couple of years since I learned that. And I haven't used it even once. It was never useful to me. I was only learning that for some weird, obscure reason or, just pure pleasure of curiosity or whatever it is, right? And I never used it. And then because of the way the brain works, you start to develop a pattern in the mind, a a kind of intuition for the character of things that you're just learning for the sake of it and not because they meaningfully contribute to some goal. You know what I mean? And I view the difference between like, okay, just to draw another analogy between hiring somebody you can hire somebody purely because they're pleasant to be around, right? Mm. That doesn't mean they're gonna meaningfully contribute to your company. And because you only have so many resources, and in life your resources are your is your time essentially in, in learning. That's your that's your primary resource. You can't just continually hire people just because they're pleasant to be around. You have to hire people that provide some value to the company. Mm. And so I view it that way. You can learn things just for pleasure, but it's much more useful over time to to learn things that that meaningfully contribute to some goal and that's why i believe a kind of cheat code for for getting these this skill set more quickly at least in one area at a time is to have goals that direct your learning so i'm trying to do this therefore everything i learn in this particular area is in pursuit of figuring that out or solving this problem or you know, doing X thing, you know what I mean? So I I think goals around your learning and uh, project-based learning are probably the quickest way to improve your selection of knowledge.
1: Right. And I think um, going back to your Oreo example, that reminds me of um, something I saw on this Discord recently. I think it was um, maybe a golden nugget, but something I've been thinking about as like a really good conception of self-directed learning. And it's this little story about someone who's seeking um, wisdom and they go and find this monk up in the mountains and say like, what's the secret to life? And the monk says, good judgment. <laughs> and and then they say, well, okay, and how do I get good judgment? And then the monk says, bad judgment. <laughs> and you know, that's that's exactly like your Aurea's example. Um, you know you you start off doing things in a suboptimal way, and then you you reflect and you realize, okay, I want to do things better. Um, yeah, and so I wrote what I wrote a piece on my blog um, about wholesome pleasure, which sort of I think seems perhaps a little bit out of place with all the other learning uh, related articles that I've written because I haven't built on it yet. But I think uh, having this conception of what is pleasure and what's wholesome pleasure is really useful because um I think, you know, there's things that give us um, this sort of, like, I guess, brief pleasure, like eating a whole bunch of Oreos, and then afterwards we might feel sick or, like, uh, Mm. for me, if I eat too too many carbs, then I feel, like, a bit mentally dull afterwards. And Mm. so it it feels pleasurable at the start, but then it doesn't afterwards. Um, Whereas, I don't know, if I have an apple, then it feels good while I'm eating it. It feels, I feel good about myself as well. Um, Right. And so I think there's, what what I wrote about in that article is this convergence towards wholesome pleasure where um, that's actually a core mechanism in self-directed learning. Where we start off doing things which seem like a a really good shortcut, we take the shortcuts and we try and do the quick fixes and we try and, you know, memorize a bunch of cards, let's say that other people have written a bunch of items, um, let's say. And then we realize that actually those quick fixes don't make us feel better. they don't actually work in the long term, and they don't mm. uh, they don't make us feel successful and so then that's the impetus for for trying more challenging things which lead to um success that lasts and that's more wholesome pleasure
0: mm. very interesting. oh, so I think that's a really good point. It seems like um to a large extent like the learning process is like centered around sort of error correction so you make a mistake and then you correct it so i was going to try and bring it back to the to the whole uh bitter lesson thing again and say perhaps we should just try and make as many items as possible make as many mistakes as possible because then since error correction is like the way we can learn you know you'd be making so many mistakes you'd have so many mistakes to error correct but i suppose making Mm. mistakes doesn't mean you'll necessarily correct them and fix them so um if, I guess, only. Yeah, if only yeah if only i could just make as many mistakes as possible i guess so since the since error correction or, or mistake fixing seems to be so important you know do you have any good ways that people can focus on that like i guess one of the things uh, this is i don't know just to give like a simple example i suppose um like sometimes i'll notice something i'm doing in SuperMemo memo isn't the best way to do it uh maybe i'm not using a keyboard shortcut or something like that but i don't like correct it straight away i'll like leave it for like a couple of months until i get so sick of doing it the slow way that i'll try to find the keyboard shortcut and do it the fast way from then on so it's like i'm delaying the uh sort of error correction which will speed up my learning do you think it's you know do you have any thoughts about that do you think we should be really like sort of diligent about correcting those sorts of errors or bigger errors
1: yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I I'm I'm um, I wonder if we're thinking about the bitter lesson in a different way because mm-hmm. um, I, I think that um, I think that oh, another distinction that's really important in this in this learning process is, is the distinction between information and knowledge, mm-hmm. and that you know we're just the the point of anything in SuperMemo um, in our items or or topics is um, the value of them is what they stimulate in our brain so if they stimulate good thinking then that's what matters um, mm-hmm. otherwise you know it's just data in a computer so um, th- when we're talking about feeding data to machines to help them make decisions um, <sighs> the data is the raw input and if you're sitting on super memo for um, I don't know hours every week. Then you're getting a lot of data, and um, as you're putting it, as you're making decisions about what to what to keep and what to discard. I think that's um, yeah. I'm I'm finding it difficult to express. Maybe <laughs> I'll need to think about it after this podcast. But I think there's um, yeah. I think there's something happening there between. Um, reading stuff on the screen Mm. and actually thinking about it in your head. And maybe uh, what we call data for a computer is different than what we call data for humans. Mm. Mm. Uh, Yeah, so anyway, talking about error correction, um, I still think prioritizing is the main thing. So in your example, like you basically almost said that there's an error that you're making mm. by doing something in the slow way, mm. which you didn't correct straight away um, because you didn't think was that important, probably. Mm. And I think that's I think that's perfectly good. And I think that's the right way to do it. And what's the point of correcting something that's not even, even um, that important? Mm. So I think just as in all this other stuff we're talking about, prioritizing and selecting what errors you want to correct, is just as important as selecting what else you want to learn.
2: Right. Mm. I do think it's important to mention this concept of actually just real quick before that, how's everybody going for time? Yeah, all good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All good. Um, and by the way, if anybody listening has any questions or, or wants to chime in real quick, you can raise your hand. We'll bring you up for a minute and, and we can uh, talk about that. Yeah. But anyway, I think it's important to mention um, this concept of learned helplessness, as long as the reason that you're, that you're, avoiding doing something that wouldn't improve your life is not because you feel helpless to improve it, then I think it's it's probably okay. And like George says, that's probably just a signal that it's not that important. So your time is better spent elsewhere. Oh, here we go. All alone, guys.
0: Oh, sorry. I was just uh, <laughs> typing a message in. General. i was just going to say, uh, yeah, I was going to reiterate, if anyone has any questions, um, feel free to raise your hand and will pull you in um yep. yeah yeah oh, i, I want to go back to um something you brought up Sandra. you brought up uh like having a goal having a meaningful goal um mm. how important do you think that is george for like good learning in SuperMemo? H- has all your learning in SuperMemo been driven by like had a goal at the end of it or do you allow yourself to do more like exploration with just no goal in sight
1: um yeah, it's an interesting thing where, like, even without trying to necessarily control the process, I think um, I think goals have been quite integral and quite important to my learning. Um, but it's hard to explain because it's not so much um, been about self discipline or something like that. It's more just been the fact that there's something I really want to do or there's something I really want to learn, and so just naturally the sort of stuff I import happens to be related to it. So, um, you know, sometimes when um, onboarding new Dendro users, we ask them, you know, what what are your goals? What are you trying to learn? And and sometimes they have an idea and sometimes they don't. And if you don't, I don't think it necessarily helps to like artificially construct a goal. Um, I think this relates to what we were talking about before about discerning high quality information, just like so much about good learning is intuitive and it's about intuition and it's about going, um, I really want to learn that stuff. Like, um, I want to learn about business or I want to learn about psychology or I want to learn about music and so on. And that just pulls me along. And then without trying to, if I look back at what I've been importing over the past few months. It all tends to be related to a central theme, um, which has a really, really important function having that central theme, which is um, the big picture is in my head. That's a question we often get about um, Dendro and SuperMemo memos, like, where's the big picture? The big picture is not something you can write down. It's something that you, you continuously build in your head. And so that big picture does tend to be related to my, my goals and the things I'm trying to achieve. Um, but again i i can't sort of construct a goal out of nowhere it has to be something that i really feel is meaningful
2: mm. that big picture note i think that's really important and so many people talk about that mm. like oh how are you going to how are you going to keep all the knowledge together if you're breaking it up into these little items or you know little short notes that only contain one idea or whatever it is and first of all you just have to try it just to recognize that's not how it works like, the brain is an association machine. That's the whole point of it. If you're learning well, which which these systems, you know, dendro, supermoral, incremental reading systems, that's one of the primary mechanisms of it. Like, the reason why it's so useful to remember the salient points is so that you can continue to construct that big picture in your mind. Because if you're learning something sufficiently complex, and if, and if it, it's worthwhile, it probably is complex in some way, the big picture is never done it's not like oh i painted that and now it's ready to go it's like you're always adding on to it so of course it's not all going to be written down and if anybody in the field made an insight what does that mean to make an insight in the field that means that your big picture has more pieces than everybody else's right so it would it would not have been possible for someone to hand you the big picture and say here you go it, it was just you learning and then constructing it and putting it all together. So the big picture is never done for anybody in any field ever. That's just a a fact of life. And that's the whole point. The whole point is to learn in such a way where you maintain the salient points in the mind and continually glue them together over time so that you can learn more and more things, develop more and more insight, and eventually your models are stronger and stronger and cover more area and you can understand more. Mm. Right.
1: Yeah. So related to that point is, um, is this sort of idea of neatness and having everything uh, written down and and trying to use SuperMemo or Dendro or whatever system as a reflection of exactly how things are organized in your mind. Um, you know, there's some apps that try and um, give you options, give you tools to, to show the links in your mind um, and to represent those on a computer and to show you how this Is related to that, and this is related to that, Um, and you can. I mean, each of us, each of each neuron, you know, is connected to thousands of tens of thousands of other synapses. So, trying to represent the knowledge in the same way that it is in the brain would be like an exhausting exercise, and I'm not sure that it would provide much value unless you're a researcher. Um, I think if you if you're just trying to learn, then you recognize that those links are in your in your brain. And what you're trying to do with the computer or the paper or whatever tool you're using is to um, is to think about things in a way that will reinforce the good links and help you make new ones. Um, and so, when you think about it that way, it's like comparing someone who's holding a textbook in their hand and someone who could write a textbook if they wanted to. It's like mm. one person has that information in front of them; it's all nicely, neatly linearly represented and the mm. other person has um all that knowledge in their brain and it, they may have never written it down it might be a totally new field of study but right all the links are there and the big pictures there in their brain
2: mm. absolutely absolutely yeah i've got kind and people of people often oh, discount discount just in general sorry about that james oh just, no sorry i real quick no no people just discount in general like the value of memory for creative work or more complex things. And they think that it's only useful. I've even heard heard very obviously bright and educated people in this field of like computer assisted thinking or whatever you'd call it. I don't really even know what it's called, but they say things like, yeah, space repetition is only good for facts and figures. I see this a lot. And it's Mm. like, what are you talking about? And that doesn't make any sense. Mm. I'm not trying to be disrespectful. But on its face, that is a very stupid thing to say. Because if, if you observe your mind at all, in any state, anytime you solve a problem, you're pulling information that's in your mind. I don't understand. I don't understand how you expect to come up with anything new, anything creative, anything that combines multiple pieces, if the information doesn't already sit in the mind. I'm not saying it's totally useless to have some stuff externalized in a note system or whatever. There's certainly use cases for that. But to say that memory has no place in creative fields or that space repetition is only useful for basic facts and figures, to me, is just to totally misunderstand and misrepresent the role of memory in these things.
1: Right. And and here I can make a clearer point about the, the bitter lesson, <laughs> um, which <laughs> is that you actually um, to have a smart machine, you need to feed it data, which it represents in models, and then it mm. uses those models to make decisions. If you don't give mm. it data, it doesn't have models, and it can't make decisions. So if you want to, if you want Google to recognise what a cat is, you've got to show it lots of cats. Mm. Um, <laughs> a lot. And yeah, <laughs> show it a lot of cats. <laughs> a lot more than a human, mm. um, I right. would say. And that's another, that's an, another example where we don't want to actually memorise 10,000 things that are useless, um, but um another another connection here is um Jeff Hawkins, mm. hopefully I got the name right um, yeah, yeah and and um his his conception of hierarchical temporal memory, which he's got a newer model now, but that that model was a model of intelligence, like his definition of intelligence was hierarchical temporal me- memory um mm. that We use our memory to predict things. So as you're trying to, um, listen to what someone's saying, you're using your knowledge of that language to try and predict what sort of words might come next, Hmm. um, just like these days, you type something into various apps and they predict what you're going to say next. Um, that's what, that's what our human memories do as well. And that's what intelligence is based on. It's based on using your memories to try and work
2: out what's going to happen next. And Herbert Simon said that decades ago. You know, talking about right. how intuition is, is essentially just memory. You're seeing a situation; it brings to mind similar situations you've seen in the past, and then you can come up with a solution based on that. Like he said that decades ago, so I, I think right. this is a settled thing. And I wish people would understand it. Anyway, I'm gonna invite uh, Matt Nielsen up because he, he has something to say. Okay. Oh, I thought it would bring him up right away. Apparently, <laughs> it's just it's just an invite, and he has to accept it. Oh, there we go.
0: Welcome to the stage, Matt Nelson. There we go. You guys hear me? Perfect.
2: Yeah.
3: yeah. All right. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just I was thinking about the the connections stuff and I to your point, Xander, it it feels like I don't know, tell me what you guys think. I was thinking about this this morning that it's just an insufficient introspection into like what a connection is actually means like when someone says that a you know only facts and figures are good for memory again like I, I kind of feel like people don't think about the fact that like the only reason a fact feels like a fact is because it's an abstraction that they've grown so used to that it, it now generalizes to everything right? like like the number one like that is such a generalized abstract concept that most people don't think about like the underlying quality that it's a connection in real life. Like you had to first learn to abstract what the concept of one meant before you could mm. turn it into this generalizable thing. And, and I feel like it's the same thing. Like as I've been learning programming, like you guys know, I've been you know dropping uh, connection items about the programming concepts I'm learning. Mm. And to me, like, it's the exact same thing. It's just learning how to fundamentally abstract out those underlying relational qualities between things. And then using them in a more universal, applicable way that you can get at the you know the 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 underlying quality of something. And I wonder if it's just people haven't sufficiently thought about what a connection actually means. Like they just they haven't really thought through I think what abstraction or generalization means. I, I don't know, what do you guys think?
2: Mm, I, yeah, I agree I mean, with that completely. Go ahead, George.
1: Um yeah, okay. Well, I just had a, a couple of things to say that I, I, I definitely agree. I think there's a couple of things in there that, um, that are important for people to understand. And one of them is the difference, um, that I think actually Xander and I talked about on that voice chat a long time ago, but the difference between learning someone else's facts and learning your own, um, Mm -hmm. meaning as you described, you've got to learn what that concept of one is, uh, and what it means in the real world before you just memorize that fact. Um, and and so coming to your own generalizations and making your own conclusions is um, is can be very very different. Like if you learn um, Newton's second law out of a textbook, it can be very different from thinking about it in real life in the first place. Um, and that's not saying that you have to reinvent the wheel for everything, but it is saying that you can't just like take a bunch of information that other people have written down and try and memorize it. So I think that's part of where that misconception comes from. Is like. Um, thinking that, that, um, if someone else makes a bunch of flashcards or writes a textbook and you read it, that that's the same quality as you actually thinking about it and, um, making the connections yourself. Mm -hmm. So the second, the second link, I think is, um, what I, one way I try and phrase it is like, what are you memorizing? If you're just picking up stuff out of a book and and memorizing it, then it's possibly going to be quite low quality. Um, If you are actually making an effort to think things through and come to some interesting insight, and then you're trying to remember that insight, well, you're remembering something more more valuable.
2: Mm. And that relates exactly to that point Mm. of the true value is what it makes you think of. That's the whole point. You're trying to think of better things as a result of... Incremental reading, all these things.
3: Well, in some right. sense, it kind of feels like, like to your point, George, it's not that you have to reinvent the wheel, but you kind of do have to reinvent the principle. You have to internalize the principle for yourself. Like to use your own example of yeah. the you have Newton's second law. Like, if you learn it, if you just see the the formula, you know, force equals mass times acceleration. Okay, like I guess that means something but then you go to push a child on a swing and then you push an adult on a swing and suddenly you know what force and mass yeah. and acceleration have to do with each other you know so it's like you have to you have to internalize the concept uh for yourself in order to actually know it
0: oh yes mm-hmm. exactly yeah. internalizing like perceptual things things that we can actually see and perceive and like pick up and hold like a plate it's much easier to have like a really deep understanding of that it's like once you move on to higher level concepts that don't necessarily have like a concrete thing existing in the real world like inflation or something like that something that you can't actually (laughs) perceive there has to be a different process for uh gaining the same level of understanding that you get from like holding a plate like i'm literally holding a plate right now and like spinning it around like understanding physically (laughs) how the shape of a plate works in the real world you know you have to do the same sort of motion in your mind with the concept of inflation and what's really interesting is that you know it's possible for us to use like the noun phrase uh newton's second law or whatever in a sentence and have it be completely coherent but we don't actually understand what we're saying if you know what i mean and so Mm. It's possible to understand when to use something uh, grammatically correctly in a sentence, and how it relates to every other word in that sentence, in, in a certain sense. Mm. But you don't have the the actual hierarchical under layer of all of that knowledge that's absolutely required, or absolutely. The, the entire sort of conceptual chain from Newton's second law right back down to originally where it started, like in the real world. I guess. <laughs> absolutely. Yep.
2: I, I have two. I have two points. I take umbrage with the idea that inflation can't be perceived. (laughs) I pay way more for a burger now than I did six months ago. I can tell you (laughs) that. (laughs) And also, James is so dedicated. He ran and got a plate just for this podcast. What a guy. Love him.
3: (laughs) Dude, was I the only one still sitting here hoping to hear a plate shattering? (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, yeah, it's it's entirely possible to receive a rule described by someone else and think that you understand it, but it's of no use because you didn't—you don't understand what the rule is derived from. Hmm. So I, I think that's crucially important. And I think all of this relates to all these things about people's relative inability to perceive the source of their own creative ideas or their own solutions to problems or things like this. And then the result is a failure to perceive like what if if improved upon would have the most impact you know what i mean
1: yeah yeah and this this goes back to something we were talking about earlier which is like um how so much of the learning process is based on intuition so you have to develop a good intuition over time um Mm. and also that um it's about perceiving like the value of high quality information and high quality knowledge and a lot of people uh, have difficulty with that because they're used to a whole childhood in school um, and often in university as well of being handed things which they've got to remember they're told it's important um, and so they get this association between it, it it doesn't have much sense to me and um, but it's got some, some fancy words and therefore it's important. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas actually, you know, meaningful information is is simply that. It's just like, oh, that makes sense. Like if you can say, if you learn something, you go, oh, that makes sense. I see that. why well, that's useful. Then it's probably high quality information. Mm-hmm. Um, un- unfortunately, I guess it's still a challenge because I, I often see even in school students I teach that, you know, People are used to saying it makes sense, even when it doesn't really make sense to them. <laughs> right. Then yes. no, They don't have enough experience with things actually truly making
2: sense. <laughs> mm. And also there's a lot of pressure, like maybe in a school context it's different, but certainly just in life. When someone's explaining something, there's a lot of pressure to just say, yep, yeah, I get it, so that you can move on mm. to right. the next thing. You know what I mean? And I think that really internalizes, without people recognizing it, this this sort of low standard for how yeah. to actually make sense of something because like you say you just your whole life consists of someone says something and you just go yeah i get it and then you just move on to the next thing and so you have to kind of root that out in yourself to determine whether or not you truly understand something
1: yeah 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 lifting your standards is probably like a really key skill in incremental learning is just like um, over time slowly um, being comfortable with forgetting with, with coming across something and going yeah okay it's interesting but not that interesting and yes. moving on. and the more you get used to that skill the more likely you're going to actually land on the good things and go oh wow this really changes the way
2: i look at things this is meaningful there you go that's such good advice dude that's th- that is one of the crucial things, and it relates to a bunch of other things we've talked about, like making fewer extracts and this kind of thing. Not everything is worth remembering, and it's okay. Like information, if something is truly valuable and you learn a lot, it'll probably come up multiple times in various forms, and so it, it's okay. You know, like you don't have to hoard it. In some way, I think it's it's a kind of knowledge hoarding, and uh, I I think that's so good. Just raise your standard and just be okay with. Yep, that's interesting, but I'm gonna leave it. Watch the video of Waz talking about World War II. Like, oh too detailed. I'm not a I'm not a combat leader or whatever something like that. <laughs> it's like, Oh yeah, I'm just gonna leave that because that's not that's not my thing. You know, I I think that's such great advice.
0: I wonder if you could say it this way, like, um what you're trying to create almost are like creative associations that aren't going to exist out there in the world. So they're kind of like rare and really special. But Mm. All of those creative associations are built with knowledge that is sort of contained in lots of different places. There's lots of redundancy in the sort of concepts that exist out there in many different articles. So you don't have to feel bad about it, Uh, you know, like you're losing some sort of like gem or gold when you don't extract Mm. it from this one article. It will probably come up again. Mm. It's the actual creative Mm. associations that are rare um, and those will just come to you uh, over time, I guess. (laughs) Mm.
1: Yeah, it's a bit like your example of um, of error correction and of of coming across a situation where you don't fix something originally, but then you come across it again and again and again and you realize, okay, this is increased in priority. Mm. Now I see the world is telling me, the universe is telling me this is actually more important than I originally thought. Mm. Um, and then you go back and learn that. And I actually think that is a core part of, of self-directed learning. Um, and it's a reason why... Uh, the, the idea of linear curriculums don't make sense to me anymore as a teacher um, because it seems so obvious that you need to learn arithmetic before you learn algebra, and it seems so obvious that you need to learn algebra before you learn calculus. It's like, how could you do one without the other? Mm. Um, but the thing is, even though that might be the order in which you'll eventually end up learning it, it's not necessarily going to be the order in which you um, you get interested in maths. And it's not necessarily going to be the order in which um, you're introduced to it in in real life. And so to give you an example um, from music, going back to that those violin items and so on, um, obviously, you know, uh, music teachers want their students to learn scales because how can you play a piece of music if you can't even play simple notes? <laughs> you know, the, it doesn't seem to make logical sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but in fact... I think you absolutely can play music without learning scales and, um, and obviously there's many scales to learn on each instrument. And so after learning a couple of basic scales, I, um, well, I guess this is also a relevant point in, in learning violin. I, I spent many years learning on my own without a teacher. Um, after I'd had a teacher to learn some of the basics, I spent at least five years just studying on my own. And mm. Um, when you study on your own, like I, I, I didn't push myself to, to practice scales. Um, I was like, well, why would I do that boring stuff? Um, so then I just, you know, tried to find some pieces that I would enjoy playing. And what naturally happened is I hit a ceiling. And when I hit that ceiling, I realized to get better at these pieces, I'm going to have to go back to my scales. And so, yes, eventually I did learn the scales before I learned the pieces. But um, I needed to come to that conclusion on my own. It's like that bad judgment, good judgment story Mm -hmm. as well. Um, And so, you know, there is a logical order between information, but that doesn't mean that that's necessarily the order you should be learning things in. I think you should just go for what's most interesting. And if you hit a roadblock, use
2: that as a signal to go back and, and learn the basics. Absolutely. And that matches my experience. Ever since I was a little kid, like, unfortunately, the only examples I can give here are like programming related. So I apologize, but like in CSS, for example, I'll go over this quickly in CSS, for example, I would learn like groups of styles before I learned even what each style did, I just knew, oh, I'm trying to make something look like this. And in the past, when I put these styles on it, it it went from looking like this to looking like this. And so even though I didn't even really know what those styles did. I was just trying to figure it out. I was trying to make something work. And it's the same thing with like SQL or ORMs or these kinds of things. Again, I apologize for the non-programmers. But the point is, you it's possible to learn the, next, the theoretical next step in something before you're supposed to, and then only backfill it when you actually need the more detailed knowledge, like George is mentioning. And I think that's a hugely valuable point. And I wrote a few weeks back about this phenomenon I've observed in my own learning where I'll want to learn something new. And so I'll, I'll, frenetically, I'll just like read and watch videos for hours and try and figure something out and make a real project if it's that kind of thing. Then I'll get like burnt out within the same day. And I'll just go, ah, I'm going to leave this. And then like some months or weeks later, I come back to it because I need that. And then it all fits together perfectly. And uh, like, it's so much better than the last time I tried to learn it. And so I think it's all, I don't know. I just think, there's, you can learn way better if you just wait for your own natural inclinations and natural use cases.
3: Well, and, and to your point, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of the designated intellectual troglodyte of the group here. So I'll, I'll bring this back down <laughs> to the meathead level for everyone. So like, I, you know, I, I, I don't, I, I'm definitely not the, the intellectual, uh, super, super heavyweight you guys are, but I do know a decent amount of physical training and, uh, like this is this is exactly what like every person who has ever done any amount of physical training
4: knows is that
3: it's not about optimality it's about adherence and the mm. the is to find thing that will allow you to stay with it long enough to insufficient repetition to where you get good at the thing and and you develop that love interest that passion it keeps you good it allows you to put in to invest sufficient time To get good at the thing. I mean, that's like that's the goal of every personal training session with a client is about finding movements and and patterns that they'll adhere to, or nutritional strategies that a person will adhere to. Doesn't matter if you have the perfect diet or the perfect training plan, perfect sleep schedule. If you never do the thing, you know, right? I don't know. Like, it's such a great parallel to physical training in all aspects. Except, always about adherence, and finding that thing will allow you to just stick with it long enough.
2: Absolutely, a perfect plan is useless if you abandon it.
3: Mm. Yeah. I was also thinking, and hopefully, I can steal this example before Xander gives it. It'll make me sound smarter. I know Atia, <laughs> uh, Peter Atia has talked about uh, teaching calculus to his daughter when they were yeah. playing in the pool. I'm sure you you remember the example. Right. You know, they were, they were doing stuff in a pool and they're talking about, you know, fluid dynamics and taking integrals and mm-hmm. talking about, uh, you know, volumes of water and, and how you can calculate things and using some basic calculus in order to do that. And she's like 12, right? 12 or 13, right, yeah. something like that. I mean, yeah. you know, she hasn't taken quote unquote the right math in order to understand that. But you can learn something at, you know, at any time if you have sufficient interest and motivation to do it.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely yes the
0: the brain has an infinite ability to connect things it's like Mm. uh i've always found it kind of weird i don't know when i just had this thought one day that (laughs) you can relate any two things in your mind even if it's arbitrary you're not like restricted Mm. from doing that in any way even if there's no logical or supposedly you know logical i guess in quotes connection between them uh you're still able to connect them. There's nothing barring you from doing that. So it's like, given that anything can be related to your prior knowledge somehow, it means that, you know, it doesn't make sense to see knowledge as a sort of hierarchy where you have to fill in the lower layers before you go up and up and up, it's more like a network, I suppose, but maybe even that isn't sufficient to, it's more like a network in the sense that any two nodes can sort of be connected somehow, even if it's arbitrary. Um, But, yeah, I I don't even know if a a graph or a network is enough to express actually how much connectivity is possible just because it seems like, yeah, it just seems like there's nothing you can't connect in your mind somehow.
4: Mm.
2: And if you want a a great example of real-time high-stakes (laughs) connection-making, this is obscure, but there's this guy, a stand-up comedian, some British white guy who raps... And I'm saying white guy because that's how he refers to himself in the titles of the videos. If you look up like white guy freestyles or something, what this guy does is miraculous. He'll be on stage at a comedy club and he'll have people throw out like 10 words or whatever. And then he'll do a freestyle rap right off the top of his head about those words. And he'll find a way to connect them all and make it rhyme and it flows well. It's really incredible stuff. So he's finding ways to connect Essentially, anything in real time, high stakes—it's great. Dude,
3: everyone needs to look him up. I, he was on James Altucher's podcast. I—I I am blanking on his name, but it is so incredibly cool. Like, yeah, it's everyone awesome. Everyone has to find him. <laughs> it's, uh, I think his name—his first name—is Chris.
2: I think it's. What'd you say, George?
1: Uh, I, I've, I've also seen that too. It's great.
2: Yeah, it's awesome. I, I think his first name is Chris, and if anybody wants to watch that, it's good. Anyway, I didn't mean to derail it, but i, I genuinely think it's related. Yeah, that sounds awesome. You need to. uh,
0: I'm going to watch that after this and then try and channel that in my incremental reading.
2: Fantastic. Love (laughs) it, dude. (laughs) Anyway, all right. Anybody else have any questions or should we wrap it up here?
0: Hello. 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 Hello.
3: I blew my intellectual load, so I'm done.
4: (laughs) I have one question related to incremental writing because it's about. So, learning is about making connections. But once you have those, you can focus on output. And I think when you are a long term user, as um, George or was, you can make your own generalizations you made and making new connections when you are focusing on output. Uh, my question is c- could you elaborate more on? Your process of incremental writing and how is different with incremental learning?
1: Sure. Um, yeah, well, I think one obvious difference between um, me and was is that he writes a thousand articles every week um, <laughs> and, I, and I don't <laughs> publish like he does. Um, the thing is, I mean, when I wrote to him about my process and and what I actually use now, um, for me, the writing and the reading fit together as part of the learning process. So I do incremental writing less for content creation. I guess that's the thing is I use the the writing process as a part of the learning process. So if I've just read a bunch of semi-related things and I'm trying to pull the pieces together um, like that rap comedian. (laughs) <laughs> um i'm trying to pull the pieces together myself you know often again this won't be like something i'm forcing myself to do it'll be more like i've read a bunch of stuff recently and i, I might go for a walk or i might wake up in the morning and go oh i see how the pieces fit together and so mm-hmm. i'll just write a little bit down for myself um and the i guess one reason why i don't publish much is because um the way my process for incremental writing works is um it's just me trying to understand the things I'm learning. And and so I, I won't often write an article with an introduction and a conclusion and this sort of structure. I'll normally write like several paragraphs um, that just relate to, to what I'm learning. Um, and so my process is like, to give you a bit more of a practical idea of my process, um, I basically, during the day when I'm, going just away from my computer, um, I use my phone to take notes. As soon as an idea comes into my head, I'll just write down the idea um, in a single note. And then another idea, I'll write it down in the single note. Then after a few days, normally at the end of the week, um, I take this single note with like, I don't know, 50 ideas maybe, and I'll import it into my incremental reading. At the moment, I import it into to Dendro, but it's the same thing. Then I come across that note um, in Dendro after a few days, and um, and I see these ideas that I've typed on my phone. Obviously, I'm using one finger on my phone. Um, I could only write a few words. So when I'm on my computer, that's a good point for me to expand what I was talking about and think about it a bit more deeply. Um, and I'll often turn it into a few paragraphs. Um, and then it's one really interesting thing I've found with this is that I hardly ever um, feel like it's worth making items out of my own incremental writing because it works. It's like the reason I'm writing it is because I've made these connections in my brain from everything else I've got in my reading process. Um, and so it's almost like I'm just writing down what was already there in my brain. And so very often, I end up doing this writing in SuperMemo and then just dismissing it. Um, and then mm. I, I don't come across it again. But then I often notice that like years later, I'm still thinking about it in the same way because I, I made those connections. The big picture was clarified. And then all the other reading and writing I do in SuperMemo just maintains it. Mm. So I I don't have a really good process, maybe like was for turning it into content, turning it into articles. For me, it's mostly a process of um, trying to make sense of what I'm learning, trying to find what's interesting, and, and then just doing those two things a bit on my phone, just writing short notes, and then on SuperMemo, um, fleshing them out.
2: I think that's really interesting. I actually feel differently about uh, making items from my own notes because over time, I tend to forget even my own like models of reality so to say and i do find that like item making about my own interpretations of things at least as it stands right now can be really helpful at least for me
3: yeah i I I would agree although i feel like i kind of split the difference between you two guys and maybe george doesn't actually disagree but i i agree a hundred percent with what you said george i think all of us who do incremental writing have all noticed that like, anytime you do that elaborative interrogation or interrogative elaboration, I don't remember what it's called exactly, but where basically you're, you are you know, interrogating the text and writing it out so that you understand it for yourself, those connections are so strong and they, they just last. And it seems almost like indefinitely, but I agree also with Xander that I do typically make an item, but I find I only have to make, like, maybe one to three items that captures like the overall structure of what I was thinking and then I just don't forget it at all.
1: Mm. Mm. All right. Yeah, I mean I um I, I also agree with Xander like I I do make items. Um I guess I have to clarify what I meant by not making items. Um this is this is part of the idea of formulation and generalization. The general idea, I don't feel like I really need to make items most of the time. But sometimes mm-hmm. I come up with like something that I think is a good metaphor or analogy. I make an item out of that, or make right. Some okay. Um, sometimes I come page. up with like a nice way to phrase it, and it's a nice, you know, it's, I come up with something and I think, oh, that's a that's a nice way to say it, um, and then I'll I'll put that into items. But the general right. idea, the deep, the big picture, doesn't necessarily go into items for me.
2: Yeah, it sounds like we're pretty much on the same page there. Then. Yeah,
4: yeah I'd agree. Yeah.
2: Anyway. All right. This was a uh, great fun. I hope people got value out of it and, and we'll get value out of the actual podcast once we post it. But anyway, just to, to wrap it up here, if you're interested in this kind of thing and, and you're a super memo user now or you're interested in these ideas and you think Superman is a little bit tough to tackle, um, I, I personally recommend that you check out Denvo because George and I and Ollie try to make it as good as we can make it and very approachable and try to incorporate some of these ideas we're talking about in, into it and trying to improve on some of the metric stuff like we talked about and, and more. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, check it out. Also, check out Matt Nielsen's sub stack. This guy, uh, he doesn't just talk about incremental writing. This guy does it all the time. And he's actually posting a bunch of articles. And uh, Georgios' blog as well. What is that? Georgios.blog. Yeah.
0: yeah. All of these links will and be in the description. And check out James as well yeah yes follow me on twitter fantastic
4: (laughs) beautiful all right thanks guys all right thanks See see ya